John Maxwell, I don't, I, he writes a lot of leadership books. Uh, I've read them, so has our staff. Uh, he has a book called Becoming a Person of Influence. I read when I first came here. Uh, there's a chapter, uh, chapter two is called A Person of Influence Nurtures Other People. Uh, great chapter. Um, and basically, if you read that chapter on the power of nurturing uh, people under your care, if you're a leader, um, you read that chapter and you can see Paul all over it because Paul was a nurturer. Uh, he's a teacher, uh, but he was also a person who poured his life into other people. Uh, at the end of that chapter, uh, Maxwell shares a letter that uh, John Wesley wrote uh, on February the 26th, 1791 to William Wilberforce, uh, who happened to be the Englishman uh, who took on slavery in England uh, and eventually, uh, after much opposition and persecution, was instrumental in abolishing it. Uh, but when this courageous uh, young man, Wilberforce, was setting out to take on slavery, uh, here's what Pastor Wesley wrote to him. And you can see the nurturing spirit of the pastor. It says, Dear Sir, unless the divine power has raised you up, I see not how you can go through your glorious enterprise in opposing this villainy, which is the scandal of religion of England and of human nature. He says, unless God has raised you up for this very thing, you will be worn out by the opposition of men and devils. But... If God be for you, who can be against you? All of them are stronger than God? Uh, no. Uh, be not weary, he says, in well-doing. Go on in the name of God and in the power of his might till even American slavery, uh, the vilest, he says, that I've ever seen under the sun, shall vanish away before it, that he who has guided you from your youth may continue to strengthen you in all of these things. This is the prayer of your affectionate servant, John Wesley. Um, amazing letter, isn't it? from a pastor to a young man taking on slavery uh, and, and thinking, um, there's no way I can do this. Uh, four days after he wrote that letter, Wesley died. Uh, and it is said that Wilberforce uh, kept that letter uh, and constantly referred back to it, because this was in 1791. They didn't abolish slavery in England until 1807. Uh, so for 16 years, it is said uh, that Wilberforce, when he would become uh, depressed and disillusioned, weary from being opposed, uh, and persecuted, that he would go back and read this letter. Why? Well, because it, it was that nurturing, positive uh, encouragement that he needed, uh, where this great godly man was uh, telling him, uh, I see great things in you. Don't give up. You know, pre press on. Uh, that, that's Paul. And when you read uh, Paul's uh, letter to the Thessalonians, the second letter, uh, you get more of a glimpse of Paul as a nurturing uh, pastor uh, who, who cared about the church that he founded, uh, and he's going to nurture them, uh, as, as we read in this letter from Wesley, with uh, precise praise. Because uh, Wesley's he's offering precise praise for this young man, Wilberforce, because he sees courage in him. And so if you're a leader, and we have many leaders in our church uh, because of where we are, where we're located, one of the greatest things you can do for people that work for you, that are in your battalion, whatever they are, is to offer precise praise and encouragement to them because you can get them to do great things. And I thought about it a lot this week because I play a lot of sports, had a lot of different kind of coaches. I had the yeller, screamer kind of coach that you were, it was never good enough for him. Then you had the other kind of coach that was an awesome coach, but it believed in you and put his arm around you and challenged you to do better. You always play better for that guy. Uh, and so Paul is like that. So we want to look at verses uh, 2, 1 to 4, where Paul, uh, like uh, Wesley, offers precise praise. And the praise here is going to motivate the saints in Thessalonica to do more for the Lord. And uh, it's a timeless principle that still echoes to our day, um, that as we face opposition in an ever-darkening culture, um, 
you need some wind in your sails. And that's what he's going to do. So uh, he begins in this letter by uh, saying, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church in Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, he just identified uh, the missionary team. It's Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Uh, we know from Acts chapter 18, verse 5, that they were all in Corinth. Uh, and we know from uh, that relationship with those uh, men there that Paul wrote his letter to the Thessalonians from Corinth uh, to see how the church was doing. So they received some kind of a update between First and Second Thessalonians on the, the nature of the church. Uh, and so the Second Thessalonian letter is written uh, to, direct, to address some of the issues in the church, to offer them positive encouragement, and also to... Um, address some issues that the church faced. Uh, scholars believe that this uh, letter was probably written around the late summer of 50 to 51 or the early fall or winter of 50 to 51. Um, not, not too many years before Paul was uh, executed by Nero. Um, so they, they, they got word of how the church was doing. And so you can kind of pick through the letter and see like what was going on there. Uh, this is uh, uh, one of uh, Paul's short, short letters. It's a very short letter. Uh, how many chapters? Do you have your Bible? Yeah, it only takes up a page and a half. This will probably take us about six months to go through this. Uh, but it's, a, it's just a page and a half. It's one of his shortest letters. Uh, but when you read chapter two, it's one of Paul's most precise prophecies that he uttered. Uh, and he's, he, and it's, a, it's a prophecy about uh, the coming of the man of sin and what time will be like before the Antichrist shows up. Uh, we're going to spend a lot of time, weeks in chapter two, because it's so uh, meaty. Uh, but they were misguided about eschatology. And so uh, Paul uh, is coming in to fine tune their study of, of, of the future. Uh, if you go back to First Thessalonians, they were messed up on the timing of the Lord's coming. And in, remember, were you here? Yeah, uh, he fine-tunes them about the difference between the rapture of the church and the second coming to let them know the church is not going to be here. Well, then in chapter 2, he's coming along and telling them, uh, you got people in your church telling you the wrong things about uh, how the Antichrist will come on the scene and stuff. Let me explain to you what's going to happen. So that's what he does. Um, but before he gets into all that, he's going to lay down a couple of foundational principles before he gets into the precise praise. So we want to go through the foundational principles. Uh, there are three of them. The first one is uh, he reminded them to remember that they had an intimate relationship with the Holy Trinity. Because we tend to forget that. You, when you're being persecuted, which the church was, um, uh, you tend to think, well, I'm all alone. You know, like, where is God in all this? And, and so he starts out by saying, uh, identifying who wrote the letter. And then he says, you Thessalonians are in God. Then he says, he's our father. This is very important. Again, we, we note that how important are prepositions at 940 in the morning on a Sunday? They are very important. Because you can be out of God or you can be in God. You only get in God by faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior. So if you're out of God, you're not saved. You're not a Christian. But if you are in Christ, you are covered by his blood, forgiven of your sin, and you're part of God's family. And so he says, I want you to remember, Thessalonians, that you are in God, and he is your father. So to a church facing persecution in a dark culture, these are comforting words. Because as an earthly father will take care of his children, by definition, uh, it's just a natural thing to do. Um, 
he says, if, if you do that, you know, for your children, how much more so will the father do this for you? I remember when I, when I, I sent my daughter on her first trip uh, after she graduated in her, in her car, um, and she went with a friend for graduation, uh, and, and it was going to be, you know, a couple hours, you know, south of where we live near Sacramento, and I put everything a dad would put in, his, in, the, in the trunk of that car for a daughter in case something happened. You know, uh, you know, the, the spray stuff to inflate the tires if they go flat and flares and, you know, flashlight and, you know, utility knife. I mean, I, stuff. I just packed it up. Finally, she came out there. She goes, what are you doing? I go, well, I'm, in case something happens. Oh, dad, I'll be fine. She's going to Santa Cruz, you know. Oh, no, no. If the car breaks down, pretty girl, you need to be able to take care of yourself. I need to make sure you're okay, etc. That's what a That's what a father does, right? Takes care of his children. What dad would go, hey, drive. I don't care what happens to the car. <laughs> Am I bizarre? Or can you relate? So if, if, if we take care of our children like that, he, it's like, don't you think God's going to have his eye on you? Answer, yeah. Yeah, he's going to have his eye on you. So uh, first foundational point is uh, uh, God, you're in God. And so if you're God, he's your father. And as you care for your children, he cares for you. Second point they needed to remember is that Jesus was indeed the second member of the Holy Trinity. Uh, how do we know that? Because he says, uh, you Thessalonians are in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So again, I ask you, how important are coordinating conjunctions? Who really cares? Who's thinking, Mom, what's he talking about? Coordinating conjunction. Uh, well, it's things that coordinate. It puts things together. So a coordinating conjunction is the word and. So in Greek, it's Chi. Uh, so he says, uh, you are in God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So because he used the coordinating conjunction, he just put Jesus on par with the Holy Father. So the Trinity is composed of the father and the son and the Holy Spirit. Uh, one time uh, when I was taking a doctoral class from Dr. Norman Geisler before the Lord took him home, probably the, the leading uh, apologist in the world. I had him when I was uh, how old was I? 22 years old as a master's degree student at Dallas Seminary. And then I had him as a doctoral student uh, in my late 50s. Uh, and when I first saw him after all those years, I told him, wow, you've aged. <laughs> and he told me, uh, and you haven't? Uh, yeah, he was, he was very funny. So very smart man to talk to. So one day, uh, this man who's written a four volume, you know, a couple thousand volume uh, set on, uh, on, on systematic theology, uh, his section on the concept of God is just amazing if you want to read his theology. But I asked him one day, we were talking about the Trinity one day at a doctoral level, and we asked this great apologist, could you define the, the Trinity in a way that like, you know, like, like, you know, cookies on the lower shelf? And this is what he said. I was like, serious? He said this. What is the Trinity? Uh, it's, it's this way. He says, um, God is one who and three whats. <laughs> Did you hear me? God is one who and three whats. I'm like, wow. That, that's, that's like profound. Uh, who, God is one who? Who is he? God. Three whats. Well, He's God the Father, He's God the Son, and He's God the Holy Spirit. And they're all united in a mysterious trinity that defies comprehension, correct? Yes, good. Who can adequately explain it? All, all definitions of the trinity break down, but we know it's there. Uh, we know from like what Paul says in Colossians 2.9, where he says, For in Him, in Jesus, all of the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. It doesn't get any clearer than that. Uh, he, 
the, the Father is God. And, and Paul comes along and says, well, uh, to the Colossians who struggled with whether Jesus was fully God or not because of Gnosticism infiltrating the church, he says, oh, he's fully God, fully God in bodily form. And then we know that the Holy Spirit is God from uh, what Paul tells us in uh, Ephesians 1.13, where he says, when you come to God in faith, uh, wonderful things happens. One of the things that happens is he seals you with the Holy Spirit until the day of redemption. That's why I believe in eternal security, by the way, because the Spirit doesn't seal you, unseal you, seal you, unseal you. He seals you. He's your engagement ring because the engagement ring, once you get one, is a promise that what's going to happen? You're going to get married sometime, four years, five years. Yeah, uh, it's going to happen. One of my friends waited seven years. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, he had a huge company, uh, and I asked, he was very wealthy, and I asked him, what are you waiting for? He said, I got to get all my ducks in a row. I'm like, ducks in a row? I got married. I had 500 bucks, <laughs> and that was given to me. <laughs> uh, I mean, but anyway, uh, moving on. Um, so he's telling you, uh, this is from God the Father. He's your Father, so he'll be with you. And it's also the fact that you have the, the Jesus in your life. You're part of the, the, the Trinity. So the point being, uh, who's with you when you encounter opposition? The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So as Wesley wrote to Wilberforce, if God be with you, what are you worried about? Did you worry this week? Did you get frustrated with news that you watched? Did you scream at your television? Did you talk to your television? Yeah. And he said, hey, just remember you're part of the Trinity. Trinity's got this. He's with you. Point three, they needed to remember how they became Christians. This is stuff we read through quickly. He says, grace to you and peace from the, uh, God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're moving on. Now you need to stop and think about that. They, they needed to remember that. How did they become a Christian? They experienced the grace of God. And grace precedes peace. It's a cause-effect relationship. You can't have peace with God unless you understand the grace of God. So the acronym for grace, uh, we've talked about it many times before. Maybe you're new to the faith. You need to understand what grace is. So the acronym, which in the DC environment works well because everyone loves acronyms here. Am I right? So God loves acronyms. So what is his acronym for grace? I say, so the G is God's riches at Christ's expense. Now you have to know how to spell, you know, so if you can spell this monosyllabic word, grace, you got it. So it stands for what? God's riches at Christ's expense. Uh, so think of it. So the Thessalonians, like us, we were born in sin. You can't get out of it. You are born under Adam's sign of sin. You inherit his sin, according to Romans 5, 12 to 21. Uh, and because you inherit Adam's sin and can't, and can't get away from it, uh, according to Romans 2, 1 to 3, you are also objects of God's holy wrath because he stands against that which is sinful. Uh, also, when you are born by nature uh, uh, dead like this, uh, Paul says in Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, you're evil by nature. It just comes by nature. He also says in Romans 3 that you just swiftly run to evil. It just comes with the turf. Uh, you might be a good moral person, but by nature, you tend to head toward those things that are dark and evil. Um, and on and on it goes. And so while we're cut off from God, according to Romans 5, 8, Paul says we were enemies of God before we knew Christ. But while we were enemies, Christ died for us. That's the thing about grace. He didn't have to. When the father came to the son and said, son, I want to redeem uh, people. But, but you're going to have to go to the cross and die for their sins. Will you go? And, this, and the Lord said, I'll go. You can send me. And according to Paul's uh, letter to the Philippians, uh, he went as a servant uh, and walked the dusty roads. When you, when you go to Israel with us, if you ever get to, it, it is a humbling thing, and it's a highly emotional thing. Every day, 
you're walking and seeing things that Christ saw, standing where Christ stood, and you realize what he has done for you. It is unbelievable. So he's, he showered his grace on you. Because he showered his grace on you, you have peace. In uh, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul says, uh, he has saved us and he's called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, because your works can't save you, your religious works. It says, but according to his own purpose and grace, which he granted us in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus for all eternity, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus. And what did he do? Through his death, he abolished death. And he brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. Uh, that, that, is, that is what he did. Uh, yesterday would have been my sister Marla's um, uh, 67th birthday, but she died from ovarian cancer when she was 61. Um, great, great woman of God. Uh, and, you know, when you're a brother and you come to a, 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 a day like that, you, people don't remember, but you remember that was her birthday. But and it, and there's a sadness in it, but there's also a joy in it, because I can know as I was playing some of her piano music yesterday on the piano that she wrote, and remembering when we used to take lessons together, and she would mock me because I wasn't doing so well, and that's not how you do the fingering, and I'm like, it's my lesson, you know, I mean, um, I mean, all those things that you remember as a kid, but, but, but when I think, it's just like, but I, but I lost her, but I'll see her. Why? Because she understood the grace, and she had the peace of God. Because he, he, he defeated death. And so I look forward to seeing her again. Romans chapter 5, he says, uh, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Remember the preposition, how important it is through? Uh, you don't get saved by anything that you do other than placing your face in Jesus, the Savior who died for your sins. And when you have it in his court of law, you're declared justified, righteous. He gives you his righteousness and you have peace. So I just have to stop and ask before we get into my sermon. This is all introduction. Uh, if, you have, if, you, if you have peace with God, because you understand the grace of God, when is the last time you stop to tell Christ, thank you for doing that for me? Uh, and if you do not have peace with God, because you've never sat down to embrace Christ by faith, uh, what are you waiting for? Uh, well, I, I have a whole bunch of questions. You can ask questions to infinity. But at some point in time, when you understand the personal work of Christ happened in time and space history, what he did, he did it for you. When you sit down in that truth and believe that to be true, uh, that faith that you accept based on that historicity, uh, you get saved that day. So again, I challenge you, um, find peace with God. It only comes through, through Christ. Now, my sermon, which we want to talk about. Uh, we have to get to the introductory things. He, he's talking about nurturing these Christians. So notice how he nurtures them with precise praise. Three points that he brings up. Number one, Praise point number one. Small, their small faith has become large faith. So he says, we ought always as leaders to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Why? Well, because your faith is greatly enlarged. We'll stop right there. The Greek word for uh, ought, uh, it really means uh, that you have a deep, important obligation. And it's really interesting. When I looked this up as a, in my uh, Greek lexicon, uh, the very first thing it lets you know is this was a, a u word used in the financial markets. So that because if you, like, a, have you bought a house here? Wasn't it shocking what you paid? And when you went and signed all the documents for that, you're telling the bank, I am good for this for the next 80 years of your life trying to pay this thing off. I'm, I'm good for that. I'm going to pay for this. You have an obligation to pay. You ought to pay, but it's a deep obligation to pay, is it not? That, that's the word. So he says, we as leaders have an obligation 
uh, whether you're a pastoral leader, lead a small group, whatever it is, to constantly nurture the people under your care uh, to do great things for God. And how do you do that? Well, you point out the things that they're doing that are great. It's easy to tear a person apart, is it not? I mean, because we all have weaknesses. Uh, but Paul says, no, we have an obligation to talk to you about the things that we see that are great. What do I see? He says, well, I see, first of all, that your small faith that you had when you got saved has now become great faith. <laughs> the word here for um, uh, something that has grown greatly, greatly enlarged, as it says in the New American Standard, uh, it is a preposition wedded to a verb. Uh, and when you, I've told you this before, but this is school, correct? When you take a preposition and you wed it to a verb, what's it do to the verb? It heightens the meaning. So it means your faith hasn't just grown a little bit, it has exploded. <laughs> Have you ever grown zucchini? Yeah. Liz and I, went, when we went to my first church in California, the church plant, uh, we rented a house. And in the backyard, they had a garden that was already set up and was already growing. Uh, and I like plants. And there was a bunch of tomato plants. And I didn't know what these big plants were, but I found out they were zucchini. I'm like, ooh, cool. There was two of them. You could feed the world on two zucchini plants. <laughs> uh, and so I was like, well, how does it work? You know? And so you know how they put out the little yellow flower, little orangish yellow flower? You said you've grown that stuff. Okay, yeah, so I watched that come out and go, oh, I guess fruit's coming or something's happening. And so then that eventually fell off and then there was a little nodule there. And I'm like, well, that's going to take all summer. So a couple of days went by, I didn't check it. Came back, I had a baseball bat. <laughs> <clears throat> and I took it inside the house and I told Liz, this is unbelievable. I mean, I should have just stood there and watched it. I mean, it's just unbelievable. And that, that's what Paul, that's what that word means. It's like explosive growth. Does that, describe that, does that describe your faith? Explosive, I mean, exponentially, massively better, phenomenal. So like, what does phenomenal growth look like? Um, well, I'll give you a couple ideas. Number one, uh, if you have phenomenal faith growth, you ask God for big things and expect God to answer. That's great faith. Uh, you lead others to a saving relationship with Jesus because you understand what's on the line. Uh, you have great faith. Well, you, you don't have to be challenged to come to church again. I got to go again. No, Sunday's rolling. You're like, I'm there. Whether you're in high school, junior high, 85, whatever, you can't wait to get to church. Uh, if you have great faith, you don't have to be challenged to be in the world, the, the word of God. So boring. I got to read again, another devotion. No, you get up in the morning, <clears throat> you can't wait to read it. It's like a great meal at a great restaurant. You're excited to see what God's going to say because you have great faith. If you have great faith, uh, you talk to God in an authentic fashion. <clears throat> I don't know how you do this, but there's sometimes when I'm talking to him, I have to kind of, it's like I'm talking to an attorney and I have to kind of preface what I'm going to say. Like, you know, I don't, I don't want to offend you with what I'm going to say, God, but I got to lay out what I'm really thinking here. So be merciful. I'm just sharing like what I think. Uh, you talk to God like that? I mean, just authentic. You have a great faith. You'll talk like that. Uh, if you have great faith, uh, you see adversity that you encounter for your faith as an opportunity. I mean, think of Paul when he's chained to a Roman soldier, Ephesians chapter 4. He's chained to a Roman soldier. Imagine if you're that guy. Hey, Julian, how was your shift with that guy? Unbelievable. I'm chained to him. I, 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 I'm the prisoner. <laughs> he will not stop talking. It's Jesus? I mean, huh? The gospel, I need to be saved, unbelievable. See, Paul, he, he, he looked upon this as an opportunity. Um, anyway, 
Uh, another thing I threw in is, if your faith is growing, whatever besetting sin you've, that you struggle with for years, when you have great faith, you get victory. Whether it's an addiction, whatever it is, you get victory over that if you have great faith. Paul says that. Let me encourage you. I've seen you go from small faith to large faith. I've been here 15 years uh, so far. Um, I've watched a lot of you go from no faith to small faith to great faith. Uh, I've seen some of you go from small faith to really good faith to just amazing faith. I've I've watched it. Nothing makes a pastor happier than to watch people grow up in the faith. And that's what Paul says to these saints. Number two, praise point number two, as he nurtures them, he says, uh, you had small love, it has now come, become big love. He says, um, the love for, that you have toward each other, uh, it grows greater and greater. Love. What's the greatest thing that this church, any church can have that the community needs to see? Agape love. Selfless love, the love of Christ. Because they're not going to find it out in the world. Not like this. He says, I've seen that your faith has, a, has a bounded. Uh, well, what does it mean to abound? This Greek word, pleonazo, uh, it means to really have more of something than you possibly need. Ladies, how many purses do you have? I have to meddle for just a moment. How much? Not enough. Not, not enough. Yeah. Uh, how many pairs of shoes do you have? I'm like, a man needs a black pair and a brown pair. I'm good. Uh, what does your wife need? Different hues. Do you know what I'm saying? I mean, different cues of fuchsia and all these kinds of things. After a while, you're like, there's encroachment on my side of the, I mean, what happened on my side of the closet? You know, it's been taken over by, you know, you just need modification. Uh, but not to pick on ladies because they need, they need what they need. Correct, men? Say yes. Thank you. Um, I, I, I like to fish. I, I don't fish here because I'm not, I don't have the time to fish. But before I moved here, I fished all the time. And I thought I had a tackle box and I had a pole. I thought I had it made for fishing for striped bass. Then I met one of my parishioners. I was at his house one night, an older guy. I went to go visit him because uh, he had cancer, and I went to see how he was doing and pray for him. And uh, he had 127 fishing poles. <laughs> yeah. Now, he owned a national trucking company. He had a lot of money, but he said, uh, son, you need, he was from Florida. He said, son, you, you need to go out in the garage and check out my, my fishing gear. I'm like, okay, cool. I went out there. I'm looking for two or three poles. His garage was lined with them. And then, he, and then he's like, check it out. I'm like, why does a man need 127 fishing poles for? Well, that's for fresh water. That's for water moving about seven miles an hour. That's for a pond that's maybe 30 feet deep. That's for the ocean, maybe 500 feet deep. I mean, he knew all the poles. And then he said, check out on the other side of my garage. All of these tackle boxes. So if you're worried about your, the wife's shoes, think about this guy. He took over the entire garage. It's all these tackle boxes. How many poles does a man need? He obviously needed a lot. And all those tackle boxes were for different kinds of water. I mean, I was like, man, I, I have so much. I, I got to get one of them. I got one pole. So pleonazo, the Greek word to grow greater, is that's what that means. You've got more than you possibly need. Men, how many screwdrivers does a man need? How many pairs of pliers? I was looking at mine yesterday. I have more pliers. Some of them I've had, they're, they've just rusted. I have so many. They're just sitting there rusted because I have so many of them. Paul says, when I look at your love at your church, it's like that. It is like way beyond what you actually would even think you would need. Is that you? Is that our church? Is it known for love? Agape, selfless love. He praises them for their love. He could have said, well, I just want to let you know I'm praising you for that massive parking lot you've got out there. And, oh, man, I've been in your gym. Woo! You got basket hoops, 
built into the ceiling. It's, unbe- it's unbelievable. I, I, I praise you for that. I praise you for it. Well, check out the carpeting. Wonderful stage. It's built of cement. You can drive a car on it. Does that really matter? <laughs> nah. That's nice. But what really matters? Do they love each other? I mean, you could have a really big church like this and not have love here, and it would be not a good thing. You could have a, a little tiny small church full of great love. That, that's what Paul's praising them for. So Paul says, let me praise you for uh, just how I've seen your faith grow and how I've seen love grow. Um, how does a copy love grow for others exponentially like this? I'll give you some ideas. Uh, if, you're, if your love is growing, you actually forgive people who commit a wrong against you. Because there's 3,000 people here. I guarantee you someone's going to offend you. It's going to happen. And when they offend you, when they hurt your feelings, etc., you actually forgive them. And then you actually talk to them. Well, I forgave them, but I never look at them in the face anymore. <laughs> That's not forgiveness. Now, you still have them over, still go out with them, still talk to them, because you love them. That, that's love. It's agape love. Uh, if a lot, it grows exponentially. Uh, when, when you ask for counsel and you get godly counsel from a person or persons, and you know it's spot on and it's true, you, you accept it even though it's hard to hear, and you, you apply it because it's going to help your life, and you continue to talk to that person. You don't write them off because you love them. Uh, you, does it matter if you are a progressive Democrat and a conservative Republican, can you go to church together? Well, it's not possible. Yes, possible. How's it possible? Well, when your love grows for other people, you look at that, and you're going, that's not relevant. What's relevant? That Christ unites us. And in Christ, we're united. We are one in Christ. These are secondary issues. There's bigger issues than that, is there not? Anyway, love increases your stuff, your, your love for each other when you begin to do those kinds of things. And then the last thing he points out is, he says, let me, uh, let me get to the heart of the matter. And this is where he, we'll get into more of this when I, uh, in the next sermon. But he's going to tell them uh, that I'm going to praise you precisely for your dogged perseverance leading to divine reward. He says, you are a church that will not let go of walking the holy godly life in a very godless time. Notice what he says. He says, therefore, we ourselves, we speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your, notice the plurality, persecutions and afflictions, which you endure. He said, I am so proud of you. Your whole culture has turned against you since you turned away from the polytheistic gods and all the debauchery of your culture. He said, I'm so proud of you because you are holding on to the face. The word that he uses here for perseverance is a preposition wedded to a verb. Does what to the verb? It intensifies it. So you take the word meno, which means to remain, and you put hupo, the preposition in front of it, hupo meno, and you make it intensive, which means you super remain. I mean, you are doggedly holding on no matter what. Uh, I read this this week of a Christian young man, 28 years old, James Grimes. Uh, He's from Alabama. Uh, He went on a, a carnival cruise with 18 family members. 11 o'clock at night, he stepped out to go find a restroom, walked on the outer perimeter of the ship. He does not know how he wound up in the water about 10 floors below. Next thing you know, he's swimming and he's watching the boat sail off in the distance. Wouldn't that be a comforting thought? And he said to him, he said, if you read his report, he said, Lord, I don't want to die, drown. I don't want to drown. And so he began to tread water. It took a while for people to realize he didn't come back from the bathroom. And so they looked for him all night, couldn't find him. He treaded water for 15 hours. 
He said he, he treaded water through fields of jellyfish stinging him. He said there was some giant fish that kept coming and bumping his legs. Wouldn't that freak you out? Uh, he, he didn't have any water. He was getting dehydrated. He was praying, asking God for his mercy, etc. Uh, and eventually they, they found one young man floating in a wide ocean. What kept him alive? Faith. That God was going to deliver him. He had that hupomone, that perseverance. He was not going to let go. That God was going to be merciful to him. And that's the kind of thing that Paul's talking about here. Is that when you face persecution, you don't, you don't quit. You hang on. Uh, when, you, when you look at what he's telling them here, uh, it is, it's, it's a word for us. Because you can be tempted to quit. Or to go hide when, when the culture goes south. Uh, I do a lot of study uh, on what's going on in our culture to know how to combat our, what's going on in our culture with truth. Uh, years ago, I read a book by uh, Patrick Buchanan called The Death of the West. I read that book probably 20-something years ago. Uh, great book, uh, which tells you exactly how our country's fallen apart. Because in there, he goes through um, Marx's disciples, uh, like uh, George Lukacs, a Hungarian, who wrote at one time, quote, a worldwide overturning of values cannot take place without the annihilation of the old values and the creations of new ones by the revolutionaries. To continue to study Lukacs is to understand the problem with overthrowing the West is Judeo-Christianity. That was the problem. How do you overthrow the West? You overthrow Judeo-Christianity. What's going on in our culture? They're trying to overthrow Judeo-Christian thinking. Uh, there's a, another book that I read um, David Horowitz, not a Christian, a Jewish man, uh, wrote a book called The Dark Agenda on how they are systematically working to overthrow Judeo-Christian thinking. Uh, I just finished uh, two books uh, by Erwin Lutzer. One is called No Reason to Hide as a Christian, and the other one is called We Will Not as Christians Be Silenced. What, what's that about? Well, he's there to oppose what's going on in our culture, to deconstruct Christian thinking and replace it with secularized godless thinking. Now, why are we talking about this? Because the word that Paul uses for persecution is the word, the Greek word, uh, diagmos, means a program that is systematic in its design. Do not think the things that you're watching is not systematically designed on false ideology to attack the church. But should we be afraid? No, no, because who's with us? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we have to stand strong no matter what because the Lord's coming back. You know this, right? And in the meantime, when we are challenged to speak lies, what do we speak? Truth. Truth. Uh, when we are intimidated by legal action as Christians to cave, well, we don't cave. Uh, when we're, we're told to go along to get along, no, we go along with what Jesus said, not what you say. Uh, when, we're, when we are uh, put, put before us slogans that we know are erroneous and false, we pull the mask back on the slogan and we show it for what it is, etc. But we stand strong and true because of hupomone. We are going to tread water until Jesus comes back. We are not going to give up. Uh, he's going to get into that whole motif uh, in detail in the next section to give you great motivation why you should stand strong and true. But for our purposes today, you, you should be nurtured to understand that you have a great position in Jesus and he's with you and he's coming back. He's going to give his reward to his saints. And in the meantime, speak truth and do it fearlessly in love. Let's stand and pray. God, thank you for the opportunity to look at the introduction to this uh, short little book jam-packed with great spiritual truth. Uh, we do live in a similar age uh, 
where uh, godless systems are arrayed against your church. Uh, but you have said that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. So we stand boldly uh, upon the word of God, proclaiming the gospel of Christ to those who need the Christ. We praise you for this day, for the week ahead. Might our lives reflect you in all that we say and do. In Christ's name, amen.